on my radio call-in shows. Had my father been driving, we would have locked all the doors and ignored the stop signs, speeding through the area as quickly as possible because that's what smart people did. Pulled over and parked behind a van whose owner stood examining his flat tire with a flashlight. Things might get a little rough up there, so just do what I tell you and hopefully no one will get hurt. She flipped her hair over her shoulder and stepped out of the car, kicking aside the cans and bottles that lined the curb. My sister meant business, whatever it was, and in that instant she appeared beautiful and exotic and dangerously stupid. Local teens slain for sport, the headlines would read. Holiday hijinks end in homicide. Maybe someone should wait with the car, I whispered, but she was beyond reason charging up the street in her sensible shoes with a rugged, determined gait. There was no fumbling for a street address or doorbell. Lisa seemed to know exactly where she was going. I followed her into a dark vestibule and up a flight of stairs, where without even bothering to knock, she threw open an unlocked door and stormed into a filthy, overheated room that smelled of stale smoke, sour milk, and seriously dirty laundry. Three odors that, once combined, can peel the paint off of walls. This was a place where bad things happened to people who clearly deserved nothing but the worst. The stained carpet was littered with cigarette butts, and clotted, dust-covered flypaper hung from the ceiling like beaded curtains. In the far corner of the room, a man stood beside an overturned coffee table, illuminated by a shadeless lamp that broadcast his shadow, huge and menacing, against the grimy wall. He was dressed casually in briefs and a soiled T-shirt and had thin, hairless legs, the color and pebbled texture of a store-bought chicken. We had obviously interrupted some rite of unhappiness, something that involved shouting obscenities while pounding upon a locked door with a white-tasseled loafer. The activity consumed him so completely that it took the man a few moments to register our presence. Squinting in our direction, he dropped the shoe and steadied himself against the mantel.
get you another. Hearing a fresh, slurred voice in the house, my brother and sisters rushed from their rooms and gathered to examine Lisa's friend, who clearly cherished the attention. Angels! You're a pack of goddamn angels! She was surrounded by admirers, and her eyes brightened with each question or comment. Which do you like better, my sister Amy asked. Spending the night with strange guys or working in a cafeteria? What were the prison guards really like? Do you ever carry a weapon? How much do you charge if somebody just wants a spanking? One at a time, one at a time, my mother said. Give her a second to answer.
This something's fucked up with this turntable. remembers he has not bought any gifts for his friends and relatives. He decides to go to Jeffrey's, the large department store downtown. Can I help you, sir? Yes, I'm looking for something in person. Any particular fragrance? Yeah, I thought you might be able to suggest something. Well, there certainly is a large variety to choose from. I can see that. That's where the store Santa Claus holds court. Probably some kid didn't get what he wanted and is registering a complaint. Hey, stop that man! He stole my Christmas present! Hey, you! Stop! Watch it, mister. 
Sorry, pal, I'm in a hurry. I understand. Christmas rush. Yeah, well, I gotta run. Hey, mister, give me my Christmas present. Go away. Give it to me. Come on, kid, go away. What seems to be the problem? He stole my Christmas present. The one that Santa Claus gave me. Look, pal, she's my daughter. I wanted to surprise her. Now she's gonna rule the whole thing. He's not my father. Give me my present. I think you better give it to her. Get out of my way. Put that gun away. Someone could get hurt. Not if you leave me alone. Now stand aside. I'm walking out of here. Oh, no, you're not. Later, at the Office of Scientific Intelligence, Colonel Steve Austin is in the security conference with his boss, Oscar Goldman. Good thing you called me in on this, Steve. When I grabbed that guy, he dropped the package and it broke open. I could see the thing inside was no ordinary Christmas present. That's why I picked it up and got it to you. Steve, you seem to have a talent for finding trouble. But in this case, you may have stumbled on a major espionage ring. An espionage ring? Steve, the man you fought with in the department store is Harrison Fredericks. For a long while, he's been known to be a free agent in the espionage market, selling his services to the highest bidder. But what is even more interesting to us is what he was carrying in that package. What was it? It was an electronic fuel cell for our latest attack missile, the SYR-9. The SYR-9? I thought that was out in California. Landing on the Arctic terrain, Steve and Oscar were accosted by the enemy agent Ramat at gunpoint, captured and locked up in an old warehouse. Is the wound serious, Oscar? I don't think so, Steve. Looks like a scratch. Where are we? It's a warehouse. Where are we?
Resume normal broadcasting shortly. I'm staying in town for the holidays. Steve, the Air Defense Command in Colorado Springs picked up an unusual radio message the other day on a restricted frequency. No identification codes? That's part of the problem. All messages received over the defense network are preceded by an identification code, and they are followed by a second IDENT code before signing off. And this communication has no code on either side. They can't even decode the message. What are we going to do? It defies analysis, Steve. As a matter of fact, nothing on record as language or numeric code is anything like it. I've called in Dr. Landis. Ethel Landis? She's the top expert in the field of coded communication. And she has a lot of kooky ideas, Oscar. I know, Steve, but we can't afford to overlook any possibilities.
got 50,000 watts in a big acoustic tower. Security's so tight tonight. Oh, they're ready for a tussle. Gotta keep your backstage passes. Cause your promoter had the muscle. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. Oh, it's going. No one knows. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. Oh, it's going. No one knows. In the top building sit the head of all nations. Worthy men from Spain and Siam. All day discussions with the Russians, but they still went ahead and beat all the plans. Now up jumped the U.S. representative. He's the one with the tight eyes. 747 for him in that condition. Flying back on a peacekeeper mission. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. But where it's going, no one knows. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. But where it's going, no one knows.
turned them into factions, and they've made a very nice living for me, and it seems to have worked. Did you ever feel that this time the horror stories jinxed you, that something that you feared and had written about was coming true? No, it never even crossed my mind. Um, it's strange because off and on uh, in my career as a writer, I have certainly written. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest Stephen King was nearly killed in June of 1999 while taking his daily walk. He was walking along the gravel shoulder of Route 5, a two-lane highway near his home in Maine, when he was struck by a van driven by Brian Smith, who had several prior convictions for speeding and reckless driving. Over a year later, Smith was found dead in his home. King is still recovering from his injuries, which included nine breaks in his right leg, his right knee split almost directly down the middle, a fracture of his right hip, four broken ribs, and a scalp laceration that required nearly 30 stitches. His spine was chipped in eight places. Yet, fairly early in his recovery, he returned to writing. I spoke with Stephen King in 2000, after the publication of his book, On Writing, which is part memoir, part reflection on his craft. The last chapter is about the accident. We started with a reading. Most of the sight lines along the mile of Route 5, which I walk, are good. But there is one stretch, a short, steep hill, where a pedestrian walking north can see very little of what might be coming his way. I was three-quarters of the way up this hill when Brian Smith, the owner and operator of the Dodge van, came over the crest. He wasn't on the road. He was on the shoulder. My shoulder. I had perhaps three-quarters of a second to register this. It was just time enough to think, my God, I'm going to be hit by a school bus. I started to turn to my left. There is a break in my memory here. On the other side of it, I'm on the ground, looking at the back of the van, which is now pulled off the road and tilted to one side. This recollection is very clear and very sharp, more like a snapshot than a memory. There is dust around the van's taillights. The license plate and the back windows are dirty. I register these things with no thought that I have been in an accident or of anything else. It's a snapshot, that's all. I'm not thinking. My head has been swapped clean. There's another little break here.
Some natural 
on a lark and peeing in the park. You should follow me on Twitter. It's jokes to Carl. That's the duh of Francais, not the duh of dumbass. But never mind that. Don't follow me now. Follow me later. I mean, for right now. W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman and Carl. Hi, Carl. Welcome to the show. Ah, thank you, ah. Mike. Thank you. I'm happy to be here on our show. We are bursting with energy. We're broadcasting right now, first, as always, on mutinyradio.fm. It is the your internet streaming radio pal, direct from the heart of the mission, in san francisco we are on there first every sunday at 2 p.m pacific standard time we are part of a delightful afternoon we follow found round sound with scotto and then we're right before ugly sunday so tune in go type in mutinyradio.fm hit play now and listen to us every sunday 2 p.m pst 
Hi, Carl. We are also a podcast by our acronym. It's A-L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-Y-T. Y-T is YouTube. Type that into your podcast app. Dumb. The whole name's dumb. Dumb, 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 dumb. And we are, of course, on YouTube where you can see Carl and me right now talking. I am, of course, wearing my Mutiny Radio shirt, as always. And we are going to watch a full-length movie on YouTube. If you're watching it on YouTube, you don't have to – basically, you'll listen to us, find the YouTube uh, movie on YouTube, listen, watch the movie, sound off, and listen to us. And if that's a big headache, just go subscribe to our YouTube channel where Carl syncs up the movies, and that's L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. Good to see you, man. What movie are we watching today? Today we will watch The Lathe of Heaven, 1980. The Lathe of Heaven. Everyone knows Lathe is L-A-T-H-E. It's La The, which is French for the and American for English for the. It's not the, confusing at all. The Lathe of Heaven, 1980. The channel we like is weird name. The end. It ends in doll, like roll doll. K L I L J E doll. Khalilji Doll. Khalilji Doll is hosting our movie. If you see something that sounds like that, you are yeah. in the right place. Type yeah. in Lathe of Hem Heaven. Lathe is a mechanical tool. I just looked that up. It is L A T H E, Lathe of Heaven. Find the link. 1980. 1980. This is pretty recent. The Lathe of Heaven. Uh, so we're going to watch this movie. So we want you to watch it with us. You find the link, Lathe of Heaven, 1980, from Khalil And then you find it, you click it, you hit pause, move it back to zero, zero. This might take you a couple minutes, but yeah, we have Mike, good news. That's a lot to digest, right? Oh, it's no, going to take a while to look up Lathe with T-H-E. Hang on. I'm going to give you... A machine for shaping wood, metal, or other material by means of a rotating drive, which turns the piece being worked on against changeable cutting tools. I have lathe metal in a machine shop. There, I use it as a verb. So, so I know exactly what they're talking about. It spins, and like you make the the beds, posts. You know, as it goes around. You yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I know heaven, right? That's where I, I'm going when I die. Oh, great! Yeah, great. no, I, I got tickets when did you and everything. Get the news? I got round trip tickets. Is that wrong? All right. Let's, uh, all right. So go ahead, hit the link. We are going to say go and you're going to hit play with us. But we have a special comedian, a celebrity yeah. comedian, right. that's going to do our countdown. So take your time, find the movie, hit the link, wait. Carl has a celebrity comedian. We're going to learn a little bit about the celebrity comedian and they are going to do the celebrity comedian countdown. Carl, take it away. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Celebrity Comedian Countdown, this time with Doug Carf. Welcome, Hello, Doug. Hello, Carf. How are you? All right, great. Now, you are an extraordinary comedian, okay? Oh, I don't know about that, but thank you. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've seen you, maybe I've seen you even 10 times, 12 times. It always, I'm, I'm bumping into you at the Comedy Cove. It's a, it's a haunt of yours, you yes. know? But I hear you started comedy kind of late. You were in your 30s. It was the early 2000s. You had this like bringer show at the Comedy Cellar. That's what sucked you into comedy. You didn't even want to do it. Tell us about this story. Yeah, I started in my early 30s. Um, I had no interest in doing stand-up whatsoever. Um, a very close friend of mine at the time thought that I was, you know, just the funniest thing walking and 
I, I didn't feel that way about myself. I was just the guy with all my buddies that made everybody laugh. Um, but uh, he pushed and pushed and pushed. And he, he said, you know, you have to do stand up. I think you're so, and there was a couple other people as well. And uh -huh. I, it, he signed me up for an amateur night um, at the comedy cellar in Greenwich village. Um, I was absolutely terrified. Um, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, I, I, I really felt like I was being brought to my execution, to be honest with you. <laughs> and, um, but I, you know, I spent a couple of weeks working on some horrifically bad material. Um, mm -hmm. And I had to memorize it, obviously, verbatim, because I knew I'd be so nervous, so scared. Um, but I put together seven minutes, and uh, I got to the club that night. I'll never forget. And I swear to you, I always tell people, if there was a room with a Bengal tiger and or the stage, and I had a choice of going into one of them, I would have gone in the room with the Bengal tiger. I thought it was terrifying. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I got up because there were people that came to see me and I felt you know, some obligation to them. They drove to the city and of course. They, made that, yeah, they made that, excuse me, um, they made that sacrifice. And I, I said, you know what? I can't let my family and friends down. I got up, I did the seven minutes and, you know, people laughed and it, it wasn't, you know, incredible. It was very uh, raw and very underdeveloped. I didn't know what I was doing really. But I remember that it felt good. And I said, wow, you know what? I think I'd like to do that again. Um, and the rest is history. I mean, I just, I start, I did a few more shows there. And then I started to get into the circle of comedians. Um, you know, the amateur comedian circle. Excuse me, I apologize for the hoarse voice. Um, I got into the circle of amateur comedians. I started finding some rooms in Jersey, closer to where I live. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I started traveling around and, and learning the craft, you know, and I, I got up on stage as much as humanly possible. I used to seek out the toughest rooms as I could, you know, because I felt like the more I challenged myself, the better I would get. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, after doing it for a little while, I started to get some, you know, quote unquote job offers, you know, yeah. where people would pay me you know, five, ten dollars, twenty dollars to host a show, you know, gas money essentially. Mm -hmm. Um but it was cool. And at the time I had a good job. I was making decent money. Um so but for me to be paid even a dollar to do something I love to do, because I fell in love with it very quickly, um, it was it was a dream because I had never been paid to do anything I loved. I think it was like a fantasy, you know, and um I slowly but surely kind of moved up the ranks. I've got some better opportunities and eventually people started featuring me and you now here I am now today and, you know, doing headlining spots and, and it's, it's, it's a tough road. You know, I always tell people you got to treat it like a job. You got to treat it like a profession. You got to put your nose to the grindstone. You have to be reliable. You got to put in the work and you have to have fun. That's the most important thing. Yeah, you have to have fun. That is the most important thing. Do you think that if you bombed the first time ever, if you didn't get those laughs, you wouldn't have been inspired to go on? Um, that's a good question. I've never really thought about that. Um, I don't know. I, I think if I did horrifically bad, it yeah. may have deterred me a little bit. Um, I, I It's not like I got a lot of laughs. I got a few laughs and people were smiling and I got some laughs here and there. Um, I don't know how I would have ran. I'm, I'm kind of a stubborn person. So yeah. 
there's a good chance that, you know, I probably would have got a little mad and said, you know what, I'm going to do this again. I, you know, I'm not going to go out on that note. So I probably would have tried it once or twice more. Um, mm -hmm. Just so that wasn't my lasting memory of it. Um, but I really don't know. I mean, I never, I never really thought too much about that. It was, luckily, uh, I did okay. But remember too, those amateur type bringer shows, you know, when you're starting out, the audiences are friendly. Yeah, and absolutely. They're there to support, you know, newer comics. They're not, they're not people that are like, you know, now you're working in a pro club. People are paying good money. So the expectation is, you know, they're going to be entertained. They paid their money. It's like anything else. You know, they, they want their money's worth. When you're doing some of those types of shows, luckily, the people in the audience understand that everybody's kind of starting out. So they're a little more, um, what can I say? They're a little more you know, understanding um, uh, yeah. and a little more forgiving is the word I'm looking for. So, it, it, but it was good. And, you know, I tell, you know, the newer comics all the time, you just got to get up as much as you can. And you can't worry about the reaction necessarily. No one, I always tell people, no one remembers how Derek Jeter did in Little League. You know, no one cares. It's irrelevant. Um, you can't miss any runs on the ladder. You have to put in the work. And frankly, I always tell women and men that are getting into this, find the toughest rooms, find the tough spots, mm -hmm. go to places where people are least likely to be receptive and it'll make you stronger. And that's, that, that was, that was something that I did and I'm glad I did it. A lot of comics are looking for the feel good spots in the beginning. Yeah, that's yeah. A mistake. It's a mistake. Yeah, and I think some comedian told you that once when you he said, "How's it going? Your comedy or whatever?" You said, "It's doing great. I've just been doing it a few months, and 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 I'm having good laughs and good reactions." And he said, "Oh, that's not good." <laughs> yeah, he told me. He said, "He said it's it's better if you have your you know your worst um your worst situations very yeah. early on yeah. because uh you know it's gonna hurt more." <laughs> when you when you fall on your face, so that's right. probably true. Now I see a lot of comedians coming <laughs> through that comedy cove, and you are very unique yeah. in one distinction, and that is, I don't want to even call it crowd work. That's being with the crowd, connecting with the crowd, and understanding everyone who's in the room. Uh, more than half of your time that you do on that stage, I know you've got all the material to fill that time too, but more than half of your time is working with the crowd. So my question to you about it, because I've seen you like 10 times, it's obvious that you have a lot of experience with that because you handle it so well. Tell me about the times when you were learning that, doing crowd work and making mistakes, pissing a guy off, getting a reaction. That must have honed you to do it so well today. Oh, I think, excuse me, in the beginning, material is a lot more important because you're scared, you're nervous, and you can't really think clearly. You know, you can't, you know, you can't really think on your feet. It's tough to be like stream of consciousness. You know, I, mm -hmm. I always enjoyed playing with the crowd. That was kind of something that I found very fun and enjoyable myself. So I was lucky. Um, you have to have the material. Um, but I think it's just, it's just practice and time. And, you know, the more you relax on stage, the more clearly you can think. I was always kind of a wise guy, you know, with my friends and, mm -hmm. and you know, to the, to the dismay of my, uh, my teachers. <laughs> my, 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 
my father really wasn't happy that I was a natural comedian. You know, that, that didn't bode well. And it certainly didn't help my GPA at all. Um, but uh, I think for me, the crowd work part, it's kind of my natural thing that I love. And as I, as I progressed and got more relaxed on stage, I think you kind of you know, morph into what you are. You know, mm-hmm. it's no different than an athlete or anything else. You know, you start out learning the basics. You get that framework of the basic fundamentals. And then you kind of, as you relax, you kind of develop and you become, you develop your own uniqueness. And I just enjoy the crowd work because it's fresh. It's new every night. Yes. You know, sometimes comedians are doing the same material over and over. And it can get boring and dry for yes. them. Yeah. And I think the audience likes it too. They enjoy the interaction. Okay, now, Doug Karf. Everyone at home That's is me. ready to, it is you, and it's yeah. not a PH, right? It's a PF. It's a PF. The P is silent because we don't like to get spit on when people are telling us our oh. name, right? <laughs> Listen, yeah. since the P is silent, why don't you just make it PF? PH, PH, that's the same thing as PF. Right? I'm not messing with thousand year, thousands of years of my yes. ancestry. Yes. I don't need right. more bad karma. Okay, now. Doug Karpf with a PF. Right. Everyone at home is poised to watch this film at the same time as we do here in the studio. So everyone at home must press play on their device at the same time we do here in the studio. So why don't you go ahead, Doug, go ahead, Doug Karpf, and give us that celebrity comedian countdown. Three, two, one, go. Thank you, celebrity comedian countdown. Very informative. I look forward to listening to it. And now I don't know what the fuck I'm watching, but I'm really mm-hmm. into it. Is this like a movie production title card? Yes. No, no. We are looking at a. I don't know. I don't know. What are we it's looking at? It's supposed to let you know, like this movie is sort of cosmic in a way. It's larger oh, than some. You're called Machine Tool of Heaven, and you're gonna let me know you're cosmic. <laughs> Well, the lathe shapes the wood, you see, uh-huh. and this guy shapes reality with his dreams. Oh, you know what? Can I get a refund? I'm done. <laughs> Wait, is he like, oh, I love her, but she will never talk to me. And then he meets her in her dreams? No, that would be National Lampoon's Lathe of Heaven. Right. I of course, which we're writing. Which we're currently working Right. No, this was a PBS film, and this was a big deal. It was called it was a project called TV Lab. It's like PBS's first made-for-TV movie ever. Wow. Um, it was done in New York, even though it was funded out of Boston. You know how PBS Oops. is all about Boston. Oops, yep. I dropped the bomb. Nuclear explosion. Ah, don't look, don't look directly into it, Carl. That'll mush your life. room. Isn't that funny? Like the explosion will mush your room. It's a mushroom. It's a oh right, it does mush your room. Okay, now here comes George. And George is fucked up from a nuclear explosion. Is he the last man alive? Kind of thing. Yeah. He's not. He's not. There's a population that will live on after the devastation. But it's gonna get interrupted by a dream. Cool. Oh, stop sign. You should really, George, respect the sign. Yeah, that's a, see, this is when society breaks down, when you have a nuclear war. People don't even stop at the stop sign. Man, you should see Carl when he has a camera. He's like, do you see this abandoned building? Boom, we're making a post-apocalyptic movie. I want you to yeah. crawl I'm on the ground. You up. 
I'm picking you up. As soon as you get back from Brandeis, I'm picking you up. And we're going to go. Now, is this based on a science fiction novel by Ursula yeah, Le Guin? Yeah, there's a woman named Ursula Le Guin, and she was a big deal. Now, big she deal. doesn't like being called science fiction. She just wants to be an American novelist because, you know, but come on. If you do science fiction stories, right, you're going to be. Oh, yeah. You have devoted fans of American fiction. Bullshit. You have science look fiction fans. Look who's waking up, okay? Twink. Wasn't the twink just in the devastation of the aftermath of a nuclear explosion? The twink was. So what's he doing here in this nice room with everything intact? He didn't get a mush room. I like Kevin Conway. Oh, yeah, good. right. His room's not mushed. It's, it's a wide room. Kevin Conway will be our evil doctor. Was he the guy in MASH? Uh, no, in no. Taxi? No, no. Uh, he played multiple characters in the Fun House. You know that horror film. You like that horror film. I do like that horror film. He was in Funny Farm with Chevy Chase. Whoop de doo. Oh, I have to rewatch that. That's Michael Ritchie. Director. Invincible, the football drama in two thousand. Direct on the American novel by Ursula K. Le Guin. Ursula Le Guin. You might know him in Slaughterhouse Five. He was um, Ronald Weary, nineteen seventy two. Slaughterhouse. What a weird Five. movie. I saw that film. Yeah. Yeah. The protagonist Ooh, two directors. Kind of Look at that guy's name. It's Barzak. <laughs> That's right. There's two directors, and they were like, X. yeah, it's Barzik. The Y Barzik. is like an e, e sound. I want my last name to have Z-Y-X <laughs> in it. Yeah. Well, yeah. it would be Spiegelman. Instead of I-E, it would be a Y. It would be X-Y-Z-Eagleman. Yeah. Right. Exagelman. So... He has woken up into a normal world after this nuclear bomb hit. Uh, it does York. rain a lot. Oh, it's the Portland. Okay, that makes well, sense. It rains in Portland, especially in the future. <laughs> now, this film, this book was set in Portland, and the film was going to be in Portland. But the thing is, Dallas had all these, like, very futuristic buildings. So they switched it to Dallas. That's true. Give it up for Dallas architecture. Now, look, look he's some sort of poke apocalyptic blue-collar worker kind of guy. And here's his, like, manager. Where are you going? See, he abused drugs, so he has to go to counseling. But the drugs he abused were drugs that prevent you from dreaming. It's fucking weird. So he's going to, like, a dream shrink. Dream shrink? Oh, cool. The dream corp. Yeah, dream yeah, corp. Oh, you got to take the future bus. It's an American bus. It's not a science fiction bus. Right. This is the future bus and future train station. I watched the PBS special. Like PBS for me reminds me of modern television because they would shoot it on video and it would look weird, right? Like this is a very blurry yeah. copy we have. I saw a Raul Julia movie that he did for PBS and it was a science fiction movie. And it looked like I was actually looking at him in the room because it was so grainy yeah. and like distinct. Yeah. Like if you ever watch a modern television set that's on 4K and yes. it looks like you're looking at Adam Sandler, like he's right there in well, the room. Much higher quality, but yeah. yeah. You still got the feeling back then on PBS, like watching Shakespeare or something, that you were in the room with them. Right, you and were in the audience. Cheap. It looked cheap, remember? It did look cheap, yeah. But it also looked immediate. Like it really did, like yes. Rod Julio was right there. And I've yeah. seen, I really do prefer watching movies the way they were shot. Like the the way the cinematographer and the, everyone involved tried to make a movie look 
purposely grainy or purposely colored or blend because if not i'm watching it on a 4k t tv or whatever right and it, and it looks like a pbs science fiction movie from the 80s shot on video yeah now this what we're watching is not the original it's like a restored the original was lost gotcha uh, it's a digital master created from the two surviving tapes was color corrected using state-of-the-art technology ghosting mm. and darkness of many of the images appear in some scenes it's the best quality transfer possible to this important work with the only surviving materials now, here's Dr. Bad Guy. It's Dr. Haber. Man, he looks pretty shabby for a doctor, man. Yep. Now, like, right now, he's... Wear a belt. He's wearing his, like, bathrobe. Well, they're doing that for 1970s psychologist tropes. You know, that it was a psychiatrist, psychologist. They would wear those feel-good uh, sweaters. Don't you remember in yeah, the 70s? on the elbow. Yes, like when he put on his professor coat, it would be patched. Okay, so right now he's fine. Right now, he this guy, he thinks somebody's coming to me again because they have bad dreams. Well, I got some whammy jammy equipment nice. and I can fix that. Now, we just saw a picture of Mount Hood. Did you notice the picture of Mount That's Hood? From, from, is he sure it's not Mount Shasta? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Look at me dropping Northwestern mountain names. So just know that it is not a picture of a horse or anything. It's clearly Mount Hood. Okay. Mount Hood. Okay. I will remember that for the third act <laughs> when he's climbing Mount Hood. <laughs> so um, it'll come up a lot quicker than that. So right now we're just getting that. Hey, come on, pal. I'm I'm your shrink. You can open up to me. Let's let's be buddies. But I'm he's doing it with a sort of pompous attitude, like your in your you know your health is in my best interest too, George. You know that kind of like. The future George is not buying it, right? Like he's just not. No, he George. is. He's yeah. just he's got something to tell the doctor that the doctor's not going to believe. Whatever he dreams comes true. Of well, course, the doctor. What? He just dreamt about war. Right. He dreamed. No, he was in a nuclear explosion. It's a little unclear in the story, Ursula Le Guin. He was, he's going to tell a story about when he first dreamed, and it must have been before the nuclear war. So, but the nuclear war sort of starts his powers. You see, it's, it's, it's a little mixed up in the plot. Gotcha. I'm actually looking forward to this movie. I, I've always heard of the author, and I just I never read it, any of her stuff. Or yeah, any, she was she, a big deal. Yeah. Um, she was a successful person. Let's see. She died in 2018. Wow, so, that's pretty good. recent. No, that's good. Yeah, but she missed the pandemic. Woof! That was close. But she was around for 9-11. Yes. Now look at the bubbles, right? Right. This is like... It's a technology that's not explained. He can make you rapidly go through your sleep stages. So poof, you're in REM. You're in your rapid eye movement dreaming state. Green go the gushes. Where yeah, there it is. is. There it is. Why can't you see a green grow the rushes? 
Why can't Please you say it? Regrow the run because it doesn't make any sense. Green people don't talk green. like that. You name no, a title after it. Not only do people say that, old. they named a fucking movie after that. God, no, it's an old folk song. Like people would talk like that in like 1810. You know, it's an old like folk song. It. I don't like it. I don't like it either. The rushes grow green is how we would say it. And a rush is like weeds, right? Yeah. Well, it's okay. a swamp weed. Swamp weed. All right, yeah. I got you. Okay. So he's now. he's in REM sleep. He's dreaming about Michael Stipe. He said, well, right now he's not actually sleeping. He's saying, tell me about the first time this effective dream of yours happened. So he's remembering when his aunt came to live with them for a short time because she, I don't know, down on her luck, some bullshit. She's always coming on to him. Now, Carl Haupt is 14 years old, sitting on the couch, watching PBS. There's Tell nothing me. in his world called pornography. No. The best he has is the Sears catalog, the bra section. Because they're photos, you know. Check it out. They are photos, technically. Yeah. So now he's watching this movie, The Lathe of Heaven. That guy's face I know, and I couldn't find it in the research. No worries. He's, he's watching the Lathe of Heaven, and here it is. This is this. This gave me a boner, and I I I wow. it for months. Watch, keep watching. Yeah, watching first it, of all, man. it's popping out right. That's number. It's a little chilly in there. That's well, okay. That's I hear one. you. Now and watch. Whoa! It's smack. Now, remember, I'm 14 living in a world without sexuality. You see something a little sexual and you go, wow. Was that a relative or like yes. a family friend? Yeah, she was always coming on to him as a joke. And he one time when they were alone thought maybe she's not joking. And he tried and he got smacked. So now he goes and dreams of her exploding in a car crash. Betty. Guess what happens in the morning? She never lived with them. She still lived in, what I think it was Houston or something. Look, he's, she's getting a letter. Your sister has died. Oh, my God. So he wakes up and, like, she, they never had, the family never had the experience with her hanging out. That's right. He never had that embarrassing thing. He dreamed her to die in a car crash. And he's telling the future therapist this. Now, you might know his face from Willard. Look behind him. It's Mount Hood. You see Mount Hood? It's Mount Shasta. Listen, mm -hmm. as someone from, as a Portlandian. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, you're an Oregian? Oh, no, actually, isn't that Seattle? Shasta? Oh, who knows? Good water, man. I recommend their bottled water. Mount, Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier is Seattle. Yeah, that's close, too. It's near. It's, it's so Rainier. Seattle. Future Doc. Okay, I think you're a little future it crazy. Yeah, so he's going, you see, doctor, I killed her. I killed her. And he's like, <laughs> there's a difference between dreams and reality, George. I'm sure you understand that. You know, he's not getting it. So the doctor thinks he dreamt that he spent weeks and weeks with his, with his aunt. Uh, yeah, aunt. aunt. No, no, no. The, he told the story of his first effective dream. He killed the aunt. And then he got all stressed out and, you know, manic about it. And then doctor's like, calm down, George. It's just a dream. I, I didn't mean to kill her. He thinks he's crazy. Right. Phew. Here, do that look. <sighs> My time. 
<laughs> I gotta quit better help. This better help gig sucks. <laughs> oh, casino? No, this is the future. Like, we've talked it's about this. It's like a bureaucracy. I mean, just like, yeah, it's the future, but like in the 1970s, they had bureaucracy, they had things on paper. Right. So just like last episode, the 1930s carried into the future. This is right, a little this is a little funny. Let's turn it up. Okay, hang on. It says here you began voluntary treatment with a Dr. William Haber, correct? Yes. Now he was in Willard in the Rats. This, this yes. guy, our hero. Only I know I know that movie. Okay. Here's my 1970s paperwork in the future. All right. Like if it was today's movie, we like let me see your float screen. But don't abuse it. There's like file cabinets behind them. Yeah. Card catalogs and Dewey decimals and look at that, they got files. All right, inboxes. so you turned it off. Not my jurisdiction. Next. Ah, oh, okay, never mind. Sorry. Well, I have trouble with these dreams. And he goes, Not in my jurisdiction, and shuts them down. Bureaucracy for you. Okay, so now we have the dream meter and all the it's, modern 70s dream stuff so oh, i believe it's the dream machine that's we live inside of my, my head. head the dream machine they come to me in my bed the dream <laughs> machine, machine. Uh, <laughs> oh, arrest me. oh no oh no remember uh, you ever see nightmare on elm street and yes. the mom turns to the doctor and she, she's smoking a cigarette. She goes, Doc, what are these dreams? Right? What are dreams? Yes. It was a great moment. <laughs> now look behind his head. Is it Mount Hood? Yes. Okay. He's wearing it as a hood. Interesting. Mountaintop. They can't even look Paramount. We tried to this. No, uh, we tried pitching this movie to Paramount Pictures. They said, no. Best we could do is a photo of Mount Hood in the background. <laughs> and PBS. So now he's going to use that dream whammy jammy on him in which he goes through all of his phases. Here, sign this. You won't sue me when you go crazy form. How many times does he sign it? Once. And here. And here. Right? The bureaucracy <laughs> here initial here now the thing why this technology doesn't make sense is it's like sort of just like is it going into his brain electrically you know i i don't get it Ooh, look at that pbs uh, graphic yeah like i think uh tv lab was funded with seven hundred fifty thousand dollars only and 250 which was considered a lot by them went into this which was considered the pilot now, they didn't just pick Ursula Le Guin. I mean, they really searched for an author. Sure. Uh, they considered Arthur Clarke, Frank Hubert, Kurt Herbert, Kurt Vonnegut mm. Jr., uh, Burgess, and Robert Heinlein. They went with her. And. Um, oh, it's just cool because she's written a lot, you know, and like uh, I, I'm into it. Well, she did Earthsea, which was like some sort of series of books. She did The Left Hand of Darkness. That was a big deal. Huh. And then it talks about The Dispossessed. I don't know that book. Um, yeah. She she made over 20 novels, 100 short stories. She did a little bit of poetry. She did literary criticism. That sounds like an old lady. 
And uh, she did children's books and she did translations. That's why it sounds like I need a little money. No, no. It sounds like she has like Isaac Asimov. She's just a genius and she can't stop. You know, like she just yeah, has constantly. Berkeley. Yeah, that's that all cool. Yeah. A lot yeah, of her I, stuff is um, anthropology and her dad was an anthropologist. I don't know. Oh. Was that, you know. She was interested in, her work was influenced by cultural anthropology, Taoism, feminism, and the writings of Carl Jung. Pretty heavy, man. Yeah, dude. And we're watching now, a movie about dreams? Right. Now, he's putting a whammy jammy on him, and he's going to tell him what to dream about. Dream about a horse. Dream about a horse. He wakes up. It's like, that horse never existed. By the way, I got a letter from the horse's manager. He caught on fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, oscillator, oscillator, oscillator. Call oscillator. him on the phone. Call him on the phone. I can't. He's he's horse right now. <laughs> he can't talk on the phone. He can do you shrank him. He's a little horse. You are beginning to dream now, George. REM patterns are normal. Unusually, something unusual. Uh, Wait a minute. Call the PBS special effects team. We found something. <laughs> it's funny. They had to go with the special effects they could afford, not the ones that were good. Well, we get it. It's a story, and they, yeah. they don't have to be like super expensive special effects. Just tell the right. story. And I'm saying that as a viewer like me. Uh-huh. What does it mean? Well, I mean, like, PBS took my money and viewers like uh, you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, this is one of the directors. Barzik says, I would run the set and David Luxton would be behind the scenes. When we come to the actual physical structure of the set, we had equal import. Um it was a limited budget, moving to science fiction. And let's face it, some of Ursula's ideas were pretty big. How the hell do we possibly portray the attack of aliens or wiping out billions of people with the plague? Spoiler alert. Too late to alert you. Wait a minute, there's going to be a plague and an alien invasion? <laughs> what it came down to is oh. we had to find metaphors, things that didn't cost that much money, would have emotional impact. They, our special effects in the lathe were not done the way they were necessarily the direction we wanted to go, the direction we had to go. I hear you. Now, Ursula Le Guin was all over this film, advising and everything, and I'm sure she had something to say about the special effects, but... Yeah, she's like, where are they? <laughs> <laughs> she didn't really write the script. It was written by one of the... By a woman who would go on to make Murphy Brown. That would be her big claim to fame. Oh, well, and, I probably know that person too. It's I could see her the the title uh, card at the end. Of the Diane movie. English. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she created Murphy Brown. The other writer, he did Porky's. He did Breaking Point. Wow. Yeah. He wrote Porky's, huh? Yeah, 1981. So it's right around this time. So he's being deep and meaningful, and then he's writing fart jokes. Oh, right, right. And what was more now successful? Look, look at the picture. And hey, where's Mount Hood? He goes, that's the triple crown winner so-and-so. That's Seabiscuit, George. It's always been there. No, it was Mount Hood. Carl, you, you brought it up 17 times. It was obvious. Oh, so he's like, 
Now, this is my fourth time watching this film. As I watch the doctor and listen to the way he talks, I don't think he knows the picture changed. Okay. Yeah, I remember it, don't you? George, that is Tammany Hall, the Triple Crown winner. (gasps) Oh, my dreams. They make it reality. Now, remember when the aunt died, the family did not know she had ever lived with... Okay, so that's another weird thing about the plot. Soon he's going to know. Soon he's... How could he know? I want to mention, like, speaking of uh, championship horse, I'm on the Seabiscuit diet. Oh, you see a biscuit? And I eat it. it? (laughs) (laughs) Seabiscuit. But this biscuit still has marks where the jockey slapped it. It's sea biscuit, you idiot. <laughs> I mean, like, what was wrong with America that, like, that was the most popular thing in the world? <laughs> sea biscuit's an American hero. Is he? Yeah. No, but Did... that's the movie made it seem that way. It was just. Oh, no, it was okay, big. He... Okay, you're right. I mean, it was just something in sports, you know? Like, right, what yeah, is yeah, this yeah. Olympics? Was everybody's into the Olympics? It, oh, it wasn't a horse, it was a human. Look at this future fan. Hey, there's my fans in the back. <laughs> your fans came out. Yeah. I'll get someone to put them back into your window, sir. Portman, Dallas. Dallas, Dallas. It does look like Dallas, you have to admit. Those and buildings we're going to look- see Dallas throughout. Some Fort Worth. Now, one of the internet sites, but it wasn't like a serious one, like IMDb or, you know, wikipedia it was some movie site like three or four click clicks of google in claimed that part of this was filmed in west germany i just don't i don't think that's true why would they do that anyway they could spend money doing something else of course i love these we will see some stock footage of like rockets taking off and stuff maybe i don't know i don't know he goes George, I'd like to see you use your dreams. Now, doesn't that strike you as a nice idea? So it's like, does he know that they're effective dreams? I mean... He got... The the psychiatrist got snookered because he now doesn't realize that Mount Hood wasn't there. You know what I mean? Like... Look, he just knocked him out and put him to sleep in, like, a click. I don't know how he did that, and he'll never do it again in the film. Isn't that weird? Right. Yeah, they did that in Porky's as well. <laughs> oh, I could see the influence Pee-wee. in Porky. Yeah. Pee-wee Angel Pee-wee. Beach. Angel Pee-wee. Beach, Florida. Sleep. Sleep, Pee-wee. Oh, I can't wait. <sighs> he wakes up. Pee-wee wakes up with an erection. Mom the funniest in. thing about that film was when he went on, Pee-wee went on his date, he wore his condom. It was on his dick the whole date. He wore his condom. The best joke's always in the beginning. He has an erection. He measures it. His mom walks in. Yeah, well, you remember this? Yeah. Yeah. Swing. That was hilarious, man. The rest of the movie, what have you. So he keeps saying Antwerp. That's their, like, code word to dream. Safe word. Okay. Um, Trigger word. You know, it's like he says Antwerp and... You know, like a hypnotist, he'll make it squawk like a chicken every time he says Antwerp, that kind of but thing. But that, that's a name, not a word. Right? It's a city. Right. right. They're just using it. Like I might say raspberries. You know, they're just using it as a, 
Okay, so he asked him to dream that this dreadful rain in Portland would go away. If it worked, the doctor would have never remembered there was rain. He would be in a world where there was never rain. Agree, Mike. So that's what's wrong with the film. You see, he goes out there and the rain goes away and the right. sun comes out. So everybody... Yeah, yeah sorry, I don't get it. No, I just... You're, uh, you're with me already. I don't get it. Look they at must the sun. The green screen there. I think it's because the doctor is trying to manipulate it himself. Like he wasn't conscious of the horse taking over the reality, but he's trying to toy with this guy. So he's kind of conscious of what he's doing. Yep. You're right about that. But that's dangerous. That's a dangerous game to play, man. That's funny. That's what George is going to say. Yeah. Because he thinks he's in control, but he already whammy jammy the doctor. But whatever George dreams, you're going to get. So you can right. suggest stuff to George. That doesn't mean he's going to dream it the way you said it. Okay, so now he goes back. He just left his patient unattended, right? So now he goes back and he's going to wake him up. And he's going to pretend... He's going to be like, it's always been Sonny George. You know, he's going to pretend he doesn't know. Oh, the George, doctor's going to pretend. Yes, the doctor's going to pretend. Doctor's going to get fucked. I hope oh, the doctor gets fucked you up. Dream? Yep, that's right. Oh. He but, says, it was an effective dream. I tell you that, they wear me out. Sure, man. That's like the pull in, in uh, Firestarter. Your eye starts to bleed. Zach Efron's eye starts bleeding. I was having a picnic on Mount Hood in the in the rain with Genghis Khan, and oh, his yeah. umbrella leaked, and the sun came out. Oh, they have online weather back in '79. No, it's the phone. You know, oh, you hear the automated recording. Weather. What eight hundred W E A? Right. <laughs> <laughs> And you're there with the rotary phone trying to figure out what the W is. So you must have the subtitles on, right? Yeah, I'm rocking the subtitles, Carl. Because that's what she came in and said. I have the weather online for you, just like you asked, sir. He did ask in the hall. She's He's listening. He's like, temperature is 105 degrees. A lot of sun. Celsius. Fahrenheit. It can't be Celsius. It has to be bur yeah, I think someone at PBS has another metric system. Yeah, because you would be, yeah, that'd be like, that's what you set the oven to. This is kind of cool. I like these, these, uh, future. Wait, it's, it's zero is freezing and a hundred is boiling, right? right. So, yeah, so. Yeah, 105 Celsius. <laughs> so he's going, I liked it better when it was raining. And George overhears that and says, he knows, he knows. He, th he knows that the doctor knows. So he's going back to confront him. Right. But the doctor won't let on that he knows. Oh, but he has to know the doctor did that. I wouldn't trust what? the doctor. What? Fucking, you have to have trust between the doctor and you, right? Like the doc can't, can't put you, turn you into a chicken and then make you lay a dozen eggs and not tell he you about it. He does not trust the doctor. Good. The doctor is making him squawk like a bird and lay eggs. Yeah. I have to say, PBS rocked during this time, right? You had the electric company. You had, like, full-on Sesame Street. You had Julia Child. 
Zoom had a lot of ass. Yeah. Zoom. That's right. Zoom came out. Yeah. yeah the news hour with Masterpiece Theater. Oh, Alistair Cook, man. Every Sunday you'd be hooked to the PBS. It was relevant back then. It wasn't just hours of craft animal cartoons and uh no i mean we had 13 channels and they were one of them and they were like they were Damn, channel 13. not going to be a network we had channel 13 as the pbs channel funny you say we had 13 channels me too yeah yeah well we we grew up the same place yeah we're in a tri-state nbc is four cbs is two abc is seven seven but you PIX know I see is 11 pix 11 is pix still around wpix yes and yes. they still do the 11? They still make it look like the World Trade Center? Uh, no. no I don't know. I don't know. I don't watch it. Uh, yeah. But I know that a French uh, curiosity shop was interviewed on PIX, and I saw it on YouTube, so I know they're alive. Okay, so he goes to this uh, lawyer uh, because it's all the part of the paperwork. He was abusing drugs, and they signed him with the other therapist. He goes, I want a different therapist. And she's like, you got to show cause, you know, I can't just switch your therapist. Right. And it's like, he's, he's, he's using me like a guinea pig and she, she's just shutting him down, you know. But he's right. I agree with him. Look at yeah. that electric sharpener. Even in the future, they have pencil sharpeners. <laughs> well, they still had pencils in the future. It looks pretty cool. Now, she will actually become the third person in our film she'll become uh, a, the third player. And it's a little awkward how she's not in the beginning because this isn't an act two person. Right. Um, you, I don't know if you'll, you, well, she did, She had a famous uh, performance in The Color Purple in 85, Shrug Avery, and she was nominated for Academy Award. For oh, Best terrific. Actress. Yeah, in a supporting role. Her name is Margaret Avery, but she's Heather in our story. She did I, a lot of work here, but I don't know if you'd know any of it. Well, I don't all the serious Spielberg movies I avoid. If there's an alien involved, I'm there. But okay. Like, nothing science fiction. I don't watch these movies. I don't really. I don't find an alien in one of these titles. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it. All right. Well, how about there's one with a fish. Would you be interested in? Okay. She did The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh in 19. I saw that movie. That's a great movie. All right. You maybe know what? these movies. Hey, so The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh is because they were all the same astrological sign, Pisces. Mm hmm. It was this, uh, I think the kid's name was James Brown III, or I don't know. No, I'm making it up. But the, it was a kid who. You're saved, making it up. He saved his, his uh, the Philly sports team god uh -huh. it's not a, literally a fish it okay it's just the pisces symbol okay so here uh cool breeze in 1972 which way is up in 77 scott joplin in 77 uh white man's burden in 95 oh i saw that that's when james Travol john travolta like it switched like white people were the oh i heard of that film. i never saw that i gotta go see that movie um Welcome home, Roscoe Jenkins. Meet the Browns in 2008. Proud Mary in 2018. Oh, I see Meet the Browns. Okay, 2008. And she was on uh, BET in Being Mary Jane for like four years. Oh, is that a reality show? Lead character's mother. Uh, oh, well, no, right. I take it back. Drama. So she's been acting constantly. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I see a gap from the... She was active in the 70s, and then there are gaps. Once in the 80s, once in the 90s, and then... Well, she's still she has been in things consistently throughout all the decades, including ours right now. It looks like she played the mom in Fish, the Save Fishburg, and the kid's name was James Bond the Third, the actor. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. You should see that movie. I, my brother and I love that film. Oh, but, okay. Uh, they do this stunt. It's you have to like it's VOD. You can't find it on YouTube. But if you have a chance to, I would go to your Netflix DVD service and see if they have the fish to save Pittsburgh. Okay, so noted. Look at Dallas, man. Dallas architecture is so normal. Modern. Is it modern? I don't know. Okay, so the, what his effective dream essentially gave the doctor his own dream institute, and look how he's dressed. Remember how he's dressed before. Sure. Yeah, right. We complained about it. Now he's in like a computer center. Look at him looking around, noticing himself. He's so weird. So they both are aware of the, the whammy jammy. Well, he's still pretending he is not aware of it, the doctor. So what a sleazy doctor. Here's the receptionist. Ooh, actual <laughs> clipboard. Thank you, nurse. Usually I have a box of cereal that you put a piece of paper on and I, I sign it that way. <laughs> Clipboard. There's a uh, stuff in the background. Bloop, 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 bloop. <laughs> so he goes, put George down for an appointment at noon tomorrow. And he goes, no, 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 doc. We're done. We're done. We're done. You got your wing. We're out of here. I got a, I got a job. Goes therapy's more important than your job. Wow, what a cool looking office he dreamt up. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, Doctor Haber's loving it too. I mean, so like George protests, but he still does it. I don't know. I'm not going to do this anymore. Oh, I think not. We have a 12 o'clock appointment. Don't <laughs> sleep, by the way. Stay up all night. I'll see you at noon tomorrow. I like how you just sleep, dude. He knocks yeah. you. I guess he does the whammy jammy knockout. Right. right. He, you go through stage one, stage two, stage three. Boom, you're in REM. Instant dreaming. Dreaming. Dreaming is real free. I think I don't know how it goes. Uh, yeah, dreaming. You, I met you in the park. We're gonna have an Ursula Le Guin cameo, by the way. Cool, good. I want to see what she looks like. Dreaming is free. It's free. Free. Yeah, gotcha. Dreaming. What a bad song. You know, you should check out Sherman's showcase on uh, Hulu. They okay. do a Deborah Harry Blondie parody that is so funny. <laughs> she sings a song about nightclub and how she's going to go out and get plowed like the winter snow. <laughs> now, I, I'm going to interrupt myself because we got a cameo. You're only going to see her for two seconds. Okay. She's going to be on the left. We're not there yet. You're going to see a long table in a cafeteria. Our heroes are sitting at the head of it, and she's going to be to the left. All right, I'm ready to pause it. No, Wait. no, don't, don't, don't. They left. Up. Oh. 
Okay. There she is. Coffee not yet, shop. not yet. There, to the left. She's she's here, the gray-haired lady to the left, all close to him. What a great cameo, man. Um, okay, so Le Guin, her husband, her 15-year-old son, and her husband's 80-year-old Aunt Ruby appear as extras in the scene where Heather and George talk over lunch in a cafeteria. All I saw was Ursula Le Guin, and all I really saw is her gray hair look like my mom. Seriously. She looked like the dust cover, like eating something. The, the dust jacket. You, you open up the book, and there's a picture of Ursula. Yeah, She's written a, 100 books. She wrote, no, she wrote 20, 20. over 20. She wrote in the 20s. And then, and then 100 then short stories. short stories, yeah. Translated a few books, knocked out a cute couple anthologies, maybe a book about puzzles. Now, <laughs> she did a book on quilting. Now, um, George has now said it was it's an experimental machine and so the lawyer um heather is like oh experimental okay that'll be your uh you know you've got a case i will go as an observer and if there's something weird i can get your switch to a different thank case. you margaret avery for doing something right she's <laughs> got to get in there oh she's she's in there for out she yeah. will now go to this appointment and be with us for the rest of the film good now good. look it's all like a nuclear see the results of the dreams change every single time they change i'm a little behind i don't know why those people still look like they were nuclear war survivors none they were protesting something and they have moving staircase this must be the new reality <laughs> yeah it it's escalated called, them up well it elevates them it's called in their movie it's called an elevator it elevates <laughs> you higher a step at a time. Wait, what's this escalator? Um, same thing. So, okay. No, if look, he's got this whammy jammy machine that if you're upset, you'll get super upset. It's called an escalator. <laughs> oh, the future. I mean, I, I really would love to see a, a original copy of this to see what it looks like if it was yeah. video y with Perfect. the light outside. Yeah. Now, he was like, fuck this place, I'm never coming back. And he's like, George, great to see you, and you're early, right? Right, so it's 11.45. He lays down and says, come on, let's go. Let's stream, come, come on. on. He goes, you have an appointment to something? Rem me up. Yeah, let's go, rem me up. He knows Heather's coming. Oh, cool. I have he seen Willard, have you, from the 70s? And Ben, mm -hmm. I guess, is the sequel. I don't know if he was in Ben. I remember No, it was Ben. Penn. Ben was first, right? Because they had Michael Jackson yes. as a kid singing this. I am you, you and me, we are us. Ben, I left you in, I don't know, a trap. I haven't seen that movie in a while. All right. I guess I'm going to see that movie again now that we're talking about it. About it. So, uh, let's there's see. a remake with Crispin Glover. Oh, I think it I was like Willard. That. Willard was the first one. Had this guy, Bruce. There yeah. was a sequel, Ben. And I think young Michael Jackson sang the theme song to the sequel to a rat movie. And then there was a remake of Willard with Crispin Glover in the 2000s. That one I saw and I enjoyed. And I loved how Ben rebelled. You know, he was like, Ben, you do what the fuck oh, maybe, I said. Maybe Ben's the first one and Willard's the sequel. There's, there was two rat movies with the different names of the rats. Okay, so all I know is Willard in 1971. 
I have heard of the sequel, Ben. I think Willard must be the first one. Okay. What a slimy name, and I think that was totally on purpose. You know, Willard. It's like Willie gives you the willies, you know? Oh, right. Well, you know, sometimes you see a movie, and the movie does the title is always the name of the character, and you're like, I don't know who Larry Crown is. Why should I give a rat's ass? Yeah. Like, whoa, they made a movie about Tammy? Out of my way. So when you find <laughs> right. out Willard is a rat, you're like, oh, cool. <laughs> no, Willard is his name. His name is... Oh, it's the boy's name? Oh, wait. Yes. So, and his rat's name is Ben? Right. Uh, Willard Styles is his name in the film. Yeah, and Ben was the an, uh, prota uh, antagonist rat. So I guess Ben was the sequel then. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay, so now he's talked all about what the whammy jammy machine does, and she's ready to observe. And Look at these space age buttons. Yeah, they're so modern. This, if this was, I mean, you know, they're so modern that I, my kids no grew clue. up with those. <laughs> it's so I futuristic. No clue, I have right? no clue what the symbols mean or why they, you need it. He's ready to accept a suggestive dream. Now, not effective, suggestive. With her, with his attorney right behind him. Now, he says, last time you were here, you were telling me about something that bothered you very much, overpopulation. That's not true. That comes out of the doctor. I want you to dream of a world without overpopulation. What he's doing. That's genocide. He's worse than Thanos, Carl. Well, not worse. Equal. He is Thanos. Yeah. When I say Antwerp. I told you I got to ask for a refund after I saw the movie Avengers Endgame. Yeah, I that's right. But it doesn't work. The joke doesn't work because right. you're not in a movie. You're not in a movie. Nobody would expect that. I, all right. Thank you, audience member, for explaining why that joke never worked. <laughs> <laughs> you should say something like, um, I was so upset that, like, you know, I took my wife to see. I was hoping when Thanos snapped his finger, I'd only have the one ticket charge. There, there you go. I something had a 50% like chance. Usually you fix my jokes. Okay, now, due to budget, they couldn't show billions of people dying in a plague. So they did this metaphor. They have him dreaming of dining at a table. There's Dr. Haber. And right. it seems like he's in the dream, but he's not. Of course, you know, George must be dreaming him. But, but throughout the drama, throughout the scene, he acts like the Dr. Haber we know. So look, he's... People are going to start to get old and die. Oh. I thought they just threw, like, fishnets over him. Yeah, look, the doctor's right. picking up on it. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, he's dreaming the doctor, so... They're in the room, and they're he's definitely the doctor's kind of pushing this along. She's, yes. Yeah. We can't afford millions of people dying or slow. We, the best PBS can do is throw a fish net over people over dinner. <laughs> now, these guys, I, you know, they were trying hard. They were yeah. trying hard, you know. And they did this 1972 film together called Between Time and Timbuktu. And it was based on oh. the Vonnegut book. One guy's from Canada. One guy's from New York. Um, ABC After School Specials. 
this was their golden time in which they got to work on TV lab for PBS and make cool films like this. This is a cool film. I mean, you don't really expect a TV movie to have this. Uh, yeah, flow. this is like a, you know, a film that would premiere. Ah, no, I killed people. Ah, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. The Whoa. translation would say incoherent mumbling. Oh, Dallas. <laughs> The sound ah, the drama. Where's half the population, you bastard? They're okay, right? Well, that's the thing. They both know that it happened. Okay? Now, it used to be before you didn't know. So if right. you're in the same room with the guy, you do know. There's a little hole in Le Guin's plot here. I don't know. And that's a little nuance to it because they're culpable. And I, again, the dreamer has the upper hand because dreamer can pull shit while whammy jammy on them and they won't be aware of it. You know, you can't tame the devil, Carl. Well, okay. I understand why you say that. And I think you're right. If you could control your dreams, George can't really, he just, Okay, overpopulation. So in his brain, he thinks, well, a plague would take care of that. You know, he didn't do oh. it on purpose. And he's upset with himself now. What have I done? Yeah, because he asked him to dream something horrific. Well, he didn't. He said overpopulation, right? If less people were having babies, I mean, it didn't have to be. You killed them. Okay. Uh, obviously, it was saying, like, kill them. Well, what if you dreamed that um, people were infertile? Or what if you dreamed that you had to have a license to have a baby and you had to get Maybe a license to have a baby? Because at least that's not... A dream! It's a dream! You know, there, there's ways not to kill everyone and fight over sure. population. This is more the result than the process, I guess. Yes, the result is... Don't have an overpopulation. Now, George is pit... Uh, Dr. Haber is pissed! You sick bastard. You should go to therapy. The plague ended five years ago. We are the survivors. Life must go on. You remember the plague, don't you? Look at Heather. She's emotionally distraught. Does she remember the plague? No. I guess she does. But does she remember the world without the plague? Yes, it seems. Why else would she be freaked out? Yeah. Otherwise, they'd be like, good morning, George. The plague? It's the plague's over. It's good times, you know. Crazy. Well, put him back to sleep. Dream that you had dinner with more guests and wake up. I'm sorry if you found this distressing, Miss Lalash. Goodbye. See you in court. <laughs> See you in court. One simple but brilliant. So they're all like shell shocked. 